Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hey there, Barry. How you doing? I'm doing very well, Michael. Good to see you again. Uh, today, we are doing sort of a special, somewhat out of our groove discussion uh, that is not on theory, but is... In it's media related, certainly. Media certainly. Related. We, we are going to talk about the recently published Ted Joya article from The Atlantic entitled, Is Old Music Killing New Music? Uh, I feel like this is our chance to don our old curmudgeon hats and say, get off my lawn, or maybe our little hipster attitudes and say, and you never had a lawn in the first place. Anyways, um, so yeah, here we are. Uh, would you like to maybe, uh, do you want to start? You want to talk about his argument or shall I? How do you want to do this? Uh, why don't you, why don't you start? And I'm happy to join you. Okay. I'm happy to join you. I think I, I, I want you to start off and I'll try to fill in whatever I think is missing, but I bet you're going to capture all the highlights. <laughs> we'll see. I have faith in you. So um, Joya's article is basically making the argument that um, new music is uh, dwindling or dead. It's not, there's just not much happening with new music. And he cites uh, data from the MCR uh, analytics firm that says that, uh, well, here, I'll read it. Uh, old songs now represent 70% of the new U.S. music market. According to latest numbers from the MCR data, those who make a living from new music should be terrified. His argument is uh, he defines old music or they define old music as music that is more than 18 months old. Mm -hmm. um, basically, he uh, the, I think the other uh, really, really relevant point here, he says the 200 most popular new tracks now regularly account for less than 5% of total mm -hmm. streams. That rate was twice as high just three years ago. Uh, the mix of songs actually purchased by consumers is even more tilted towards older music. Uh, Give that number, Michael, because I think that's crucial. Uh, there is no number for this one, unfortunately. He did just, you, he just, did just, you mention the 70% number? That's the crucial number. Yeah, old songs represent 70%. 200 okay. most popular new right. tracks account for less than 5% of total That's streams. It. That's what um, we got. Okay. So the, the rest of the argument, just to, to, to sum this up as best I can, uh, and there's a lot of people talking about this. So if you're listening to us, there's a decent chance that you've heard this discussed somewhere else, or uh, certainly it's uh, highly likely that you could find the discussions if you haven't. Um, the, the argument is basically that young people are listening to older music, that the record companies are not investing in newer mm -hmm. music. Um, he talks mm -hmm. about the fact that the Grammys uh, just have a dismal viewership. He says that uh, last year, 8.8 uh, .8 million people watched it. That was, I guess, 21. Um, a decade ago, 40 million people watched it. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess in 2020, 18.7 million. So there's a pretty a pretty steep decline in people watching the Grammys. Right. We, can, we can talk about what that means and why. Um, he's, the 
he's tied this to the fact that vinyl is now the number one selling physical format. Um, which we should, which we should say is something that's been contested. Like, yes, I see, and we both have seen and noticed arguments, um, recent arguments or recent pieces, you know, media industry, music industry, uh, statistics that suggest that vinyl is the big driver of physical formats and is the main physical format that uh, seems to be in the resurgence. But Rolling Stone recently published an article suggesting that CD actually has made a similar comeback and may even be poised to overtake vinyl. Yeah, but it's also seen it. So, you know, his charge that vinyl is in the front seat, I, 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 have, I don't have the statistics at hand, but we know of other statistic-based arguments that seem to counter that observation. But his basic point is that physical format is making a comeback, and he's tying it to this idea that he has to his argument uh, that new music doesn't have the cultural purchase that older music does. There's, the that, uh, there's the, his, his main argument, and he, he says this a couple of times. So again, I'm reading directly from his article here. He yes, says, sir. the music industry has lost its ability to discover and nurture their talents. Sure. And then uh, he says a little bit further on, nothing is less interesting to music executives than a completely radical right. new kind of music. Um, music algorithms are designed to be feedback loops, ensuring the promoted new songs are virtually identical to your favorite old songs. Sure. And then I think the, 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 the strongest statement he's gotten, this is really a reiteration, but he says it twice again. Um, the problem isn't a lack of good new music. It's an institutional failure to discover and That's nurture it. That's his key point. You're right. um, he just says there's that the, basically the record companies have given up on creating interesting new music and i've listened to uh a couple different discussions about this i've read some stuff but there's a really interesting uh response by uh bonnie sternberg uh, from inside hook and i think she just kind of eviscerates this argument but which we'll get to momentarily um but the the thing i guess the question i have about this is that it seems to be if not taken largely out of context to really be rooted in a singular perspective. And um, I'm not necessarily going to go and say he's fully wrong, but the thing that's not talked about, so maybe, you know, before we get to that, what, what, what's your thought to this? Give me your take on this. I can, well, I, I, I can I, come back. I think you were, I think you were, it sounds from what you were about to say, if I can, read your mind and as we well know by now i can read your mind so i think I'm, I'm sorry i'm sorry for that by the way <laughs> um i think where you were going with this um was that there seems to be a kernel of his argument that we cannot dismiss but i figured this is where you were going uh and why you mentioned the inside hook response um there, while we feel there is a core to his argument, some truth, enough truth to his observation that we want to discuss it and that we can't overtly dismiss. Nonetheless, 
there's something a little bit suspect about Goya's uh, Oh, I'm already forgetting. I think it's Joya. Joya, about Joya's piece. And that seems to be rooted in something else you said. Uh, you talked about his personal perspective, inside mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's, another, here's another word for that or another phrase for that. Um, and I think we were both sort of touching on the weakness of the article, that after he makes his observation, when he moves into his arguments, his arguments seem to be unfortunately based on personal anecdotes. They are. For example, for example, I'll just give one. And this is the type of thing that, um, is it Sternberg who is uh, Steinberg? Yes, yes. Steinberg. This is what Steinberg picks up on, but I think we were already sort of noticing it, that um, after he makes his initial observation and quotes that, I mean, the core observation that it's at the core, the, the observation that it's the core of this, that the number, the data, the data point about the 70% share that older music gets in streams, that seems to be undeniable and worth explaining. Yeah. But then, but then some of the thing that Joya does, um, at one point, he moves into anecdotal evidence to support this general, this to make the argument that this is a noticeable trend. Like for example, he goes to a restaurant and everybody is singing Sting or something like this. I can't remember. Or records, that was at the record re- store. Re- record store that was sing, at the sing. record store. But, but he also says that in a restaurant, they're singing music that's 40 years old. Yeah, okay. But well and good, perhaps very pertinent, but rooted in personal observation. And I guess we were both, I anticipate this is where you were going, Michael. We were both concerned about the uh, the fact that after he moves away from his observation, he seems to move into um, argue. He seems to base his arguments on personal anecdotes and perhaps too heavily so, too much so. Yeah. Um, so for me, you know, I think that it's important to acknowledge the fact that he's not necessarily wrong. Right. I, I think that there is a lot of old music that's getting listened to because there's a lot of good old music. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he flirts with the idea or at least he acknowledges that there are people who are making the argument with this is because there's no good music being made now. And I got to tell you, my, my that's just ridiculous. Um, there's always going to be good music being made. Right. Um, there were P- I remember if we go back, I mean, okay, so I'll go back 30 years. I remember people saying, oh, there was no good music being made. That's sure. You know, you, and, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to say that, I guess. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that, yeah, people listen to old music. And I think that his argument that I'm interested in is the one that I believe in most is the one that record companies are no longer investing heavily into the recruitment and development of bands. And he says that a lot of that is motivated by fear of lawsuits. Um, I'm reading uh, a book called sellout right now. Uh, 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 What was his name? Ozzy, Dan Ozzy. Um, You hear that? And and he, thank you know, God the, your memory is good because you, <laughs> so <laughs> otherwise um, we well, would have to break up this episode and I don't know pause what it's, for five minutes and it's, anyway it's, thank it's you a, it's thank a bad you. sign that I don't even know who wrote the book I'm reading <laughs> but um what's well, one of the books I'm reading but anyways the 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 base the, the premise the, the purpose of the book is to look at what motivated or what happened 
in uh, early 90s music uh, right around the shift in from, I guess, from hair metal to grunge, but pre, uh, you know, before the, the, the rap explosion um, about how all of the record companies just swooped in trying to gobble up these bands. It was basically the exact opposite situation of, of what's the current moment now of the current moment. It's, it's but, diametrical. But, that's important to mention. Yeah. But there's, but there's fascinating parallels. And one of the things uh, that Ozzy brings up in his book is that there was a really pretty heavy resistance among a lot of, and he's, uh, he's specifically looking at um, punk bands um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> that there's a, a real resistance that, you know, that, that the record label, um, the, the major label deal is, is, is contra to the punk ethos of, you know, DIY. Um, that's true. Um, but the problem with it really was that the record companies, the record labels by and large had no idea what they were looking for because they didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think that we have a similar situation now where the record companies are not pursuing, certainly because we're highly litigious, but at the same time, I just don't think they know what's going on. And I think that the ground underneath the music industry has shifted wildly and has been shifting really since, I mean, I'd say since, what was it, uh, Napster in the mid, right? What was that? I guess that's the mid 90s, right? Uh, late 90s. Uh, um, and Napster is really early aughts, isn't it? When was Napster? I'm, I think it's early on. This is, we can call this the Google episode. Um, the Google episode. <laughs> when did Napster come out? Napster was 99. Okay. So I, I both think right. since the both right. Both be right. Um, <laughs> since, since, since music started becoming digital, I think things have shifted. Um, and so there's two things that I'm thinking about here. One, they're looking at streams. Uh, and two, the thing that I don't think he talked about a whole lot is the amount of time that it takes to invest in new music. And the thing that comes to me, I'm going to shut up after this, but I, I kind of want your thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm thinking specifically of Radiohead and I'm thinking a, a bit about OK Computer, but really I'm looking at the album that came after that, which was Kid A. Um, and this has happened to me a number of times. In fact, I'd say in the last couple of years, every album that I've really liked, this happens. Mm -hmm. When I got Kid A, I hated mm -hmm. it. I hated it. Uh, it wasn't what I was ready for. It wasn't what I expected. I hated it. I wanted to love it, but I hated it. And then I had the chance to go see Radiohead with, uh, or I had the chance to go see them in Atlanta shortly after that album came out. And I remember walking back to the car uh, after the show and looking at my mm -hmm. friends and just saying, well, this is obnoxious. I was like, why? And I said, because this has now gone from an album I couldn't stand to my favorite album. And uh, it was, I, I still, I, I love everything about that album, but I cannot explain how much I hated it for the first four months that I had it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it just took time to grow on me. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I'm thinking about is that we live in a culture and a time that wants it now. Mm -hmm. And now needs to be easily digestible and easily forgettable, right? Good music takes time. It takes time to work its way into you. It takes time to establish meaning. And so I'm wondering if part of the reason that we don't see so much, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not there, but that we don't see so much good music is because that music really takes time. And it's just not suited to the formats that we use to consume music 
regularly. That's perfect. I, I think I can you know, agree with you more. So I think that's great. You think about a record, it takes time to listen to records, right? That's why they're selling. The good music, I think, is probably people are listening to good music. Um, there's a move among a lot of musicians now, and this is a financial move, I think, to self-publish because we can do a lot of the media work on our own. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in my, my Jason Isbell t-shirt, who's, you know, doing all of his own stuff through Bandcamp. He's not worried about the labels. He's doing really well. Um, I hated his last two albums when they first came out. I should note, he's like my favorite musician, but I hated him. Um, you go see him live. And you're like, my God, this is amazing stuff. So um, I wonder if, if, if some of this isn't maybe tied to this idea of rapid consumption, uh, immediate uh, distribution. I mean, I, I just, it seems to me like that's a piece piece that's not being talked about. What, what do you think? Michael, I agree with everything you said. Uh, I would just add two things. First thing I would add is I think you gestured to uh, Joy as the other substantial uh, point that he makes that, you know, my personal takeaway would be two things from, from this article would be two things. What was the first thing? The idea that there is a phenomenon that needs to be explained which is that new music doesn't seem to have the cultural impact that older music does in the current climate. That is a phenomenon that needs to be explained. Um, and, but I would say that there are a multitude of factors beyond that that may be worth another sort of podcast worth discussing. But that observation strikes me as sound. And in your, in your, in your recent comment, in what you just said, you point to, I think you helpfully point to another uh, bedrock of Joya's argument that I think is irrefutable, which is that at the, at the moment, and there is a curious parallel between this moment of the record industry and the 90s moment of the record industry that you were pointing out. I think there is a parallel in that the record execs the A&R people, the artists, artists and repertoire, the people who are interested in develop, who formerly, in a former time, were interested in locating talent, promoting talent, and by a variety of means, uh, nurturing talent right. and making sure that talent could not only be disseminated, uh, not only were, was it about producing and distributing uh, you know, what talent produces to a mass audience, there was also this idea that t- individual talent needs to be nurtured and protected to a certain right, extent. Right, right, right. Okay, so that notion, um, um, now in the 90s, there was very strongly that notion that A&R people had these duties, but there was a curious cluelessness that you pointed out that, what was his name, Dan Ozzy was pointing yeah. out, that... While AR people knew, and their job as they understood it was to find new talent and promote new talent and nurture new talent. However, there was a discrepancy in that maybe more than ever before, uh, I guess compared to the 60s, when you think of somebody like, when you think of Amin Erdogan and the Atlantic Records label, there was a dude, there was no generation gap. In a sense, um, even though Ahmed Erdogan had his musical loves, um, that he was more savvy in jazz and R&B, but he he got the rock thing to the extent that he recognized new talent, and he was definitely about nurture. He could recognize 
and nurture uh, the talents on the Atlantic Records label. By the 90s, there's a little bit of a disconnect uh, where people can recognize talent, but they're, they're not really, the A&R people aren't really recognizing talent. They're just noticing buzz. They're All, noticing well, no, publicity. What they're, they're noticing local for, communities. Yeah. I think what they were looking for, quite frankly, is headcounts in a way. Headcounts, exactly. Right, it, it, right. It's, yeah. it's interesting yeah. because it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's a very primitive version of data that it, it, that is what's happening now. You hit it. Like hit if it. we're counting streams and, 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 and views, there they were looking at just ticket sales. How many people are going? And it, it's, exactly. kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, uh, arrogant, like, oh, well, if you've, you're, you're playing to big crowds, but you just need me to get you in front of more That's people. It. That's so it. It's, I think it's the it. same thing. You nailed it. And, and in fact, that is a better way of thinking about it. That's a anticipation of our moment. That's an early instantiation of the moment we're trying to describe, the moment we're living through. So going back to it, Let's use more 90s examples. Um, I heard an interview on Tom Morello's uh, uh, Sirius XM show, uh, interview with the guitarist for Primus. And I've heard, and actually I also heard an interview with Tom Morello was interviewing uh, Dave Navarro. Same mm -hmm. thing where, you know, all these sort of, well, same thing in this respect, not the same thing. Okay. Uh, well, obviously not musically the same thing, no, the no, same no, dynamic no. we're, right, we're no, talking I, about. Yes. Um, the same dynamic, right? The A&R people, you know, the A&R, the business of the record company was to find a good producer, <laughs> find a producer for this band, right? Mm -hmm. And to nurture the talent, to allow the talent to express itself and then to distribute it. But um, in both these interviews, basically the producer was gifted into, or the, the, the producer worked, the producer group team worked to the extent that the producer let it go. In other words, let the band do whatever it was doing because there was a perception on the record company. And in most of the cases, the producer was a representative of the record companies. Mm -hmm. There was, um, there was a, a, where, you know, a kind of disconnect. They were thinking, I know this is important, but I don't quite know what's going on. I'm going to trust the band to do what it does because I don't know how to get into this. Right. And you're right. There was a sort of arrogance there that, what we're doing is we're producing, well, what the record company is doing is just getting this to the masses so we can sell things. And uh, they were, they were, there was a kind of fundamental mystery. They, they recognize talent without appreciating it. How about that? Is that without fully understanding it? Is that, would that be a good way of articulating no, see, it? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel that way. I feel like they were indifferent to talent. This, this is okay. where it, it, it okay. turns specifically just to a money grab. If I throw X dollars okay. at you, I can make three X or five X or 50 X back. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I, and I think that the, the ignorance was really uh, a cultural ignorance. Like, and this is, this is maybe sort of what's happening here is that, you know, um, in, in the nineties, there was a very, very, very deliberate way of being that, you know, the music was the sort of culmination of many different things. Um, it wasn't just music. And I think that in the nineties, the record company perspective was simply focused on the music. I mean, how, how else do you think you're going to take this sort of anti-establishment sense and then bring it into the establishment and then sell this to, you know, mm -hmm. uh, su suburban kids who were automatically going to think, okay, this is a great mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. There was, sometimes it worked. I mean, I think the thing that, you know, the, the, the book starts out with a, with a chapter on Green Day, 
um, who succeeded because they were poppy, you know, but a lot of the other failures that you look at, like, man, this, this, I mean, and there were several successes as well. Like they weren't totally wrong, but um, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the way I think they thought it would be. It was just yeah, looking at yeah. you, you sold out clubs here. So you'll sell out, you'll, you'll sell a billion records elsewhere. Well, well, just to square to the circle and in the interest of time, let's fast forward from the, to the current moment. And now we have A&R people, the, the point I think we're getting, taking from Joyous Peace is this, that now currently record company people, record industry people, A&R people have just full, totally folded on their, on their duties. They basically have, um, what's the word, offloaded their responsibilities to TikTok. And so and this is something that Joya mentions that, you know, all we're doing now all an A&R person needs to do now is just go to a TikTok influencer, see what's popping up on TikTok. And that's the, that's the extent of their talent search. Now, as a result, one thing you can't do in that process is you can recognize talent, you can market talent, but one thing you can't do is nurture talent because that takes, folding this back into something you mentioned earlier, that takes time. Mm-hmm. And nobody is interested in our current, um, the algorithm does not encourage now, patience, does do, it? Do you think though that they're not willing to do that because everything is so accelerated that what's hot now simply won't be in six months? Well, I mean, I think it's a, there's a multiplicity of reasons, but I, I think Joya's point is precisely that, that they're the, the sense that nothing gets, I mean, what's the consequence of the fact his original statement was what it was this notion that new music doesn't have traction well motherfuck if new i'm sorry what am i doing uh the gratuitous uh, swear <laughs> which is an important part of our episode but if that's the case if new music doesn't have traction the logical corollary of that is that you you can't you you can't expect anything to happen in the long term. So you have to limit to your, yourself and you have to limit your nurture of the talent or your promotion of the talent to the moment. You have to anchor into the moment. I mean, doesn't that sort of follow from, from the first premise? If music is instantly disposable, if it doesn't get traction, you're on to the next thing. You have to be on to the next thing. No? Yeah, I, no, I think, I think, I think, I mean, look, who am I to say yes or no? I, how about I give you a very strong maybe? I think it sounds like that's, I mean, you know, he makes the comment in the article that uh, musicians today would be better off uh, getting themselves a place in a video game than they would with a record deal because they'd get more exposure. Well, that's um, it. Yeah, exactly. And, right. and I think that I think that you're right, maybe. You know, there's so many different streams and access points here um, that the the record companies are, you know, I guess they're just going to the points. And, and I think it's now or now right. we're now we're done. Now we're done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I just think from and this is where when you think of it from the business perspective, if you think of it from the point of view of capitalism, um, then this is exactly the right thing to do. This is exactly the right purchase. Here's the thing, right? The record industry has been this is a controversial statement, but I'll make it. The records, the the record industry has been imperfectly capitalist, maybe up until this moment. It's been imperfectly, yes, it's always a capitalist. And in general, it succeeded in say, 
exploiting the surplus value produced by the musician. But, but I would say that now, armed with the algorithm, the record, the record industry can be more mercenary about getting an artist, exploiting them, and dropping them like a hot potato. Okay, so I know we have to wrap up. I'm going to give you one more quick little uh, hot take on this and you tell me what you think. Or is it possible that we take a Marxist take on this and just say that- the Wasn't that, that what I was doing? Well, my, what my, I was... well no, I'm looking at the, <laughs> fine. Uh, <laughs> that the means of production have shifted. Oh. And that the musicians no longer need the record companies in the way that they did and are maybe less aggressively pursuing this and are just making their money in ways that aren't charting. I would be very happy if that were the case, and that might be the case, but I think it remains to be seen whether that's the case. It, it is more likely that the record art, the, uh, that musicians are, I think my, my description of the current scene is that musicians are wondering WTF was going on. See, and I, they're I, trying very desperately to figure out what's going on. I, I and, think they're trying very desperately to maintain their mode of production. I see that, but I also see something else. This gives me hope. He seems to have this rosy uh, conclusion where he says, uh, CEOs are last to know. That's what gives me solace. New music always arises in the least expected place. And when the power brokers aren't even paying attention, it will happen I, again. I have to say that is, okay, this is where we part. Um, I think that's total bullshit. I, I think it's absolutely, uh, it's, there's nothing, I mean, I'm just being a pragmatist or basing on evidence. I don't believe that, I, I mean, I think that's a nice rhetorical flourish for his essay. I'm happy that Joya took advantage of that, but I think there's absolutely no evidence or empirical evidence to suggest that things are magically going to take another turn and that another Beatles or punk rock or hip hop is right around the fucking corner. It's not happening. There's no evidence for that optimism. There's plenty of evidence for that optimism. There's no fucking evidence. There is. Barry, the but, world the world has been going to hell since the dawn of time. And yet what? with the turn of every generation, somehow we find out we're still sitting here. Now, oh, come on. Come uh, on. I, no, I'm going to be an optimist. This is my moment. I'm going to be an optimist and say, you know what? Here's the reason. This looks like a disaster, but it's not, okay? Because we are in the middle of a massive, massive shift. Well, we are. And, and out of that massive shift is going to come a very significant realignment. Oh, no, fuck. That's where you're wrong. No, it's not. Okay. You know, I'm glad we were finally able to get to the argument part of this. It's not. I, I think that what's happening is that we are still looking at data that privileges hmm. the record companies, that privileges, that privileges the traditionally big picture. And hmm. I'd be willing to bet that within the next 10 years, this looks very different. And that the, oh my God, there's no new, it's, it's impossible. Maybe I just, maybe I have a small mind, but it's impossible for me to conceive that um, this is the death knell of anything. I do think, well, I, I agree and I don't. I, I think our difference is I have more of an imagination of disaster than you do, which is neither a good thing or a bad thing. I'll say that it's a neutral thing, but I have more of it. I find it very easy to believe that things can get significantly worse in 10 years time. I agree with you 
that there can be changes. Um, but I'm not necessarily optimistic that the changes are going to be constructive in the way that Ted Joya suggests they will be, that all it takes, I guess I'm really, what I'm being pessimistic about is, and maybe I'm reading too much in Joya, but I'm, I think with that ending, he's suggesting that all it takes is a new cohesive movement and everything else, including the record companies, will reorganize around that new movement. I'm less skeptical, I'm more skeptical about that possibility, which maybe I'm reading into him. Well, let me, okay, so here, just to finish up, I'm not suggesting that it's going to, that we're gonna have another grunge or hip hop moment. That's and not I, what I'm saying. I read, yeah, but I'm saying, I think that Joya seems to be implying that. And that's what I was taking. Well, I, I, I'm okay if Joya is wrong. I'm, I'm saying that I do think that the music, I don't not the music industry, that the, the, the music machine will fix itself, will find its new footing. I think it's going to be different, though. I don't think you're going to have the record companies in that same position. We've seen too many artists over the past 20 years really kick and win for the music companies to maintain that, 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 that I primacy. I agree. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't think music is dead. I just don't think the system is going to look or operate the way that it does now. Well, then I think we are at a point of closure because this is where we're, this is our core agreement beyond the disagreements. Um, the core agreement is I agree with you that you cannot kill music. <laughs> you can't kill music. That's what but, it is. But, you know, and, and so, it, but on the other hand, uh, and it seems like uh, what you just said, uh, is, like I said, like I just mentioned, I think we're at a point of agreement here because I think what you just mentioned is that what you're, what you're saying now is you can't kill music, but that when music comes back, it's going to be in a radically different form. My vision of this new music formation it will not be, I predict, for what it's worth, it will not be in the form of a new grunge or a new hip hop or something like that. But music is going to survive in the same way that it always has. It's going to be grounded in local practices. It's going to be something that is associated with scenes, with locales. It's going to be, as it always has been, um, the 90s rock revolution that you were talking about, it's all scene based. It's based on localities, Primus, all those bands, either in LA or in San Francisco, right? You know, these bands that express the scene, it's going to return to that. That's always been there. And arguably, that's always been there. Music comes out of localities, it's extremely local. So nobody's going to kill that. And if there is a resurgence of music, it will take that form. It will be an evolution from that local point of origin. All right. I, well, I'll tell you what, let's we'll uh, we'll flag this episode and we'll revisit it in 20 years and we'll see. Uh, sure. We'll see how you did. That sounds like a fair deal. <laughs> hey, Barry, thanks so much. Uh, so there you go. That's the uh, the this is uh, the amphetamine uh, reptile um, uh, episode, I think, of our thing. You know what? I'll let you write the show notes for it. <laughs> I'm just going to say that's So that's the response to the joy article. Uh, thanks for listening. And Barry, we'll uh, we'll pick this up next time. All right. Take All care, right. Michael. See ya. 
Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com.